So where were you 18 years ago? Where were you living? What were you doing 18 years ago? Now, some of you weren't doing anything because you weren't here yet. I got it. You know, you hadn't arrived on this terrestrial ball yet. Uh, and let me just take a moment on those, those notes to just encourage you, if you haven't thought about this in a while, uh, to think about this today. That you, whether you're under the age of 18 or over the age of 18, that you have been made according to the Scriptures with great wonder. And I would love for you just to be amazed and thankful today that you are shaped and formed in your mother's womb. That your life was created, that you are a masterpiece designed delightfully by the ruler and owner of the universe whose name is Jehovah God. And He was and He is and He is to come. Just, just be thankful that you are here. And if you were around 18 years ago, then what were you doing today 18 years ago? Well, I was at 57 McDowell, at least where I was leaving in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, it was a Friday, September 24th, 1999. So that morning I was in class at seminary, and that afternoon I was working on my sermon for Sunday. I was the pastor of the church at the Abbotswood Assisted Living Center in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, I'm frozen. Oh, there it is. And that is actually it. That's not like a picture of some random building. That's actually it. Uh, we had about 60 people that come, came to the church at Abbotswood Assisted Living Center. Uh, all of them were 78 and older. Uh, we had about 60 every Sunday who weekly attended. We had one married couple. Uh, we had about 58 ladies, and we had one guy, you know, the one man. He never missed. I, I assumed he knew it was church and not the singles hour, but, you know, we, we, uh, we, were, we were happy to have him. We uh, used donated Methodist hymnals that were published in 1966. We had an organ that someone had donated from their home that plugged into the wall. You couldn't jam on this one, Stacy. It was, it was just kind of a small little thing. Uh, we had a lady from another church that would come and, and play the organ, and, uh, and we'd sing, and, and we had a great time. On those Sunday mornings at Abbotswood, uh, we only had one person in the youth and children's ministry, uh, and that was my daughter Bailey, who was about 19 months old. She was it. You know, what anybody else? Now, my wife was waddling a little bit uh, because God was fearfully and wonderfully making uh, our son Carter at the time in her womb, and Carter showed up in December. And so then we had two kids under the age of 18 in the church, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Those days at Abbotsford were interesting. And every single Sunday, our old folks would make their way to the elevator or down the hall and come upstairs into the big meeting room where we had our church services. And they worked really hard at making sure they were there. There was rarely a day when our numbers were off. Sometimes they would come walking. Sometimes they would come with a cane. Sometimes they would come with a walker. Sometimes they would come in a wheelchair. But, but they came. They were faithful. They were diligent. And why were they so faithful? Why were they so diligent? I mean, yeah, I, I led the hymns, you know, with donated hymnals and, and an organ. So, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't, the music wasn't great, you know, with me leading. I did the preaching. I, so the preaching wasn't great, you know, with me preaching. 
We didn't have any donuts. We didn't have any coffee. You know, we didn't even have a meet and greet time. I mean, there, there wasn't a whole lot of talking and hugging and shaking hands or anything. There, just, there wasn't much to it. But they came, and they came diligently. And why? Why were they so faithful? Well, after watching them for really every Sunday, I think I only missed maybe one Sunday in over a year, watching them Sunday after Sunday for over a year, I have an answer for why they kept coming. But I would love to find a way to see if Jesus can give that answer better than me. And what does a bunch of old people showing up at church on Sunday have to do with you this morning? Well, it has everything to do with you. Let's find out what that means. Listen to Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Jesus grew up in church, and even though the religious folks at the time did not like him very much, they still would let him teach from time to time in the church, in various churches, in various cities. Now, their anger toward him was increasing, so this may have been the, the last time that he taught in church, but he was able to teach. And just a little side note, Jesus went to church. He didn't think church was dumb or stupid or a waste of time. And Jesus didn't go to church and, and rudely tell all the people that what they were doing was dumb and stupid and a waste of time. Jesus went and he gave them the truth about God's kingdom. But Jesus did not go teach in the church and tell everybody that their music was too traditional or too contemporary. He didn't go into the church and say, well, your dress is too casual or too formal. He didn't go into the church and say, you know what, you don't have enough activities for senior adults. You don't have enough activities for youth and kids. Those things are all fine, but that's not what Jesus went to speak about. He went to say, this is the truth of God's kingdom. Here it is. And he spoke that truth firmly, but with love. So one day Jesus was teaching in a church, and he did something that he had done many, many, many times. He noticed someone that was in need. Listen to verse 11. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. For 18 years, this woman was, was doubled over. She was severely hunched. It was, it was like a, a permanent fetal position, but she could still walk. And you know, when we think of someone hunched over like that and we hear these words, we, we just assume maybe she was an older lady. But what if she wasn't? What if this was something that happened in her 20s and, and now she's in her 40s? And in this hunched state, she cannot physically move to, to look into the face of her husband. She cannot physically move to look into the face of her kids. She's not ever able to see the beauty of a sunset. She's never able to lift up and look at the majesty of a sunrise. The only thing she could see was the ground. How'd she get that way? Well, a few moments later, down in verse 16, Jesus says that this woman was bound up with this illness because of Satan. So there's some kind of connection that Satan has put this debilitating spirit into her. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that she was possessed by a demon? No. Does it mean that this woman had been tempted by Satan to, to do some kind of sin, some kind of immorality, and she gave in, and because of giving in, now she has this disease because of her sin? No. 
So what is the spirit that made her hunched over? We don't know. We just don't. What we do know, though, and what we can simply acknowledge is that Jesus says somehow, in some way, the enemy, Satan, has been pushing this woman's back for 18 years. Jeff Thomas says this about the enemy. He is the ruler of the darkness of this world. He uses lies, deception, murder, and every kind of destructive activity to cause people to turn away from the gospel and keep them in bondage to unbelief. He goes on, he will use anything to hinder a Christian's usefulness, temptation, guilt, doubt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, and even slander. And he says this, he will intervene in any physical malady, in deafness, Parkinson's, mental illness, Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancer, paralysis, and so on to prevent people living useful Christian lives. Now, does that mean that Satan is behind those diseases? No, not at all. Does it mean that the enemy will use anything he possibly can to get you to see that the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the love and the truth and the grace and the mercy of Jesus is not the most satisfying reality in the universe? Yes, he will do everything he can so that you will not see that or believe that. Does it mean that he will use anything he can to convince you that God does not love you, that God does not care about you, that God has left you alone to suffer and be miserable? Yes, he will use anything he can to convince you that that is true. So, what do we do? How do we battle with the enemy when he works so hard to use so many things against us? Do we live in constant fear of anything that the enemy might use to, to cause trials or troubles in our life? No. Do we go to the other end of the spectrum? Do we, do we try to just say, well, I mean, yeah, Satan's out there somewhere, but I mean, no big deal. No. We should not ignore the fact that he has a measure of power in this world. So what should we do? Well, here's just a, a few practical helps from Scripture. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He goes on a couple of chapters later, put on the full armor of God so that you would be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then James says it pretty simply, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the pictures are kind of simple. Don't let your anger get past sunset. Or I'll be gracious, just let's say midnight. You know? don't, don't let the day end and your anger still be defining you. And resist, stand against the enemy. Don't mingle in with his ways. Don't have anything to do with that. Listen, sometimes the enemy strikes us physically in our back or our knees or our legs or, or wherever. Sometimes he has that ability to, to somehow use the physical maladies of life to push us away from God. But if he doesn't strike us physically, I can promise he is always pushing down on our hearts and our minds. He is desperately and defiantly trying to get us to believe that everything about Jesus is a lie, a fairy tale, and a fake. So the challenge from Scripture is this, don't mingle around and don't swim around his tempting evil bait.
Jeff Thomas goes on to share these words from C.S. Lewis. There are two equals, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And then he says this, the devils themselves are equally pleased by both extremes. They are. They they love the extremes. So the call of the gospel is do not go to extremes. Don't go to the extremes. Recognize the enemy. Resist the enemy. But do not reward the enemy with too much of your attention or too much affection for his ways. So this woman's physical illness, it has some kind of spiritual influence that has been prodded along by Satan, by the enemy. And this illness has left her severely hunched over. So just put this into your life for a moment, okay? Just think about maybe what you had to do to get to church today, you know? Or just think about a a normal morning, just what you do in the first hour after you wake up. How hard would it be if, if you had a severe debilitating hunch where you could not pull up at all? How difficult would it be just for the things you do in the first hour? My son hurt his right hand in his team's football game the other night, and for a few hours that night, we were wondering, man, if this thing's more than temporary, how's he going to do school this week? You know, this is just school. 18 years, this woman could barely function. 18 years, constant pain. 18 years, constant difficulty. And where do we find her? At church. (laughs) We found her at church in this scene. A few minutes later, again in verse 16, Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. In other words, this wasn't like Easter Sunday. This wasn't a Christmas Eve service. The pattern of her life was to gather together with those who were worshiping God. It was not a chore for her to be at church, but it should have been, right? I mean, just think of what she had to do to get ready for church that morning and to walk to church from wherever she lived. I mean, she had a whole bunch of excuses she could have used. I mean, she could have every Sunday said, you know, I just don't feel like it. I'm just, I'm just not going to go today. And don't forget the historical setting of this either. This is a woman who had gone to a church, and, and the men would have had some kind of reserved seating, and the, and the ladies would have you know, been in the back or in the corner or on the side or somewhere, but, the, but clearly they would have been second-class citizens, so to speak, in this environment, tolerated in the worship service. And so here's this woman with, with the severe hunch. She cannot stand up. She's going to a place that takes great energy, great work for her to get to. And when she gets there, she's going to be immediately looked down upon culturally because she's a woman. And then she's going to be looked down upon because she's crippled. And yet, she goes. But everything about her was different. And as soon as she went into the door, she was different. So let me press us just a little bit as a church on this. How are we doing at church with folks that are different? I mean, really, just think about the average Sunday or the average Wednesday. How are we doing at welcoming folks that are different? How are we doing at welcoming folks that are not like us? How are we doing if we're senior adults at welcoming youth and children? How are we doing if we're youth at welcoming senior adults? 
How are we doing it at welcoming people that are different from us, maybe from different backgrounds or, or different countries or, or different colors on their skin? How, how are we doing at welcoming people with, with disabilities, maybe physical disabilities or, or mental disabilities or, or financial disabilities? How are we doing at welcoming and loving folks that are different than us? Now, let me just boast of the Lord in our church. I, I think we're crazy friendly. <laughs> I just do. And I've always said, if, if the church can get Jesus right and be nice to people, God can work in that church. So I, I think we're very super friendly, and we, we score high on the friendly scale. Here's the thing, though. God hasn't called us just to be friendly. He's called us to be faithful. And faithful means that the gospel is not just for us. It's not just for those of us who are in this room or who come to this campus. This is what the psalmist said, Psalm 67, verse 1. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. That's great, right? We, we should turn that into a song and, and sing that at the beginning of, of church every Sunday. Oh, God, be gracious to us. Bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us. That sounds great. But you've got to keep reading. Verses 2 and 3 go like this. So that... Your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So don't miss the theology. God, bless us so that we might be your tools for helping people see you. Not God, bless us so that we will have a great sound system and really nice bathrooms and a great campus. And oh, God, bless us so that we will enjoy our campus. That's not how the gospel works. Sure, we want to enjoy our campus. You know, we do. But, but we want to have a, a nice place to be used for the gospel. We want the, the place, the campus to be used for, for all peoples. And so let's press just a little more maybe beyond even the campus. How are we doing at loving people who are different when we are not at church? How are we doing at loving others when we're not here? See, the challenge that comes from the Old and the New Testament and from the person of Jesus is this. Let us love God. Let us love others. But most specifically, let us love in such a way that all peoples will know we are Christians by our love for all peoples. This is how Jesus talks. This is the gospel. So this woman, severely crippled, very different in her church. She's in church that day, and something happens. What happens? Listen to verse 12. When Jesus saw her, I just want to stop there just for a second. When Jesus saw her, remember the scene, here's a severely hunched over woman, not even in a joking way, everyone would have been taller than her. She would have not been able to be seen just physically. And then she would have been distant, separated off in, in some other area. And so Jesus saw her. He, he saw where she was. Listen, I can't convince you this is true, but I, I do need to share it with you. Jesus sees you. He sees you. And he sees you in the middle of your 18 years. Your 18 years might be a spinal illness, maybe. Your 18 years might be a rebellious child. Your 18 years might be an irresponsible grandchild. Your 18 years might be an impossible spouse. 
Your 18 years might be a depressing job. Your 18 years might be just good old plain depression all by itself. Your 18 years might be right now, and you're anxious about college. Maybe your 18 years is right now, and you're anxious about getting a job. Maybe your 18 years is right now, and you're anxious about finding a spouse. Maybe your 18 years is fear of retirement money, or fear of growing old, or fear of death. Do you have an 18 years in your life right now? I wish I could make you, but I can't. But I want you to know Jesus sees you. And he sees you in your 18 years. And he sees this woman. And what happened? Listen to the rest of verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. This is kind of interesting. So Jesus makes the crippled woman walk all the way across the room to come over to where he is. Oh, mean old Jesus, right? But don't miss the picture. Jesus is in a spot where everybody can see him. And so he needs her where he is so that everybody can see her. And they would be able to see her when he said, you are free. You're freed. You are loosed. The language here is is as if she was chained to a post. She could not get away. And Jesus, with a word, removes the chain completely so she can be completely free. Those are some fancy words, right? But I mean, any you know, local, late-night, toupee-wearing televangelist on Cable 10 public access, I mean, they could say the same thing, right? Oh, yeah, yeah you're healed, you're free. So can Jesus back up these words? Listen to verse 13. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. So this lady was not planted in the service, okay? Jesus didn't have an earpiece, and Bartholomew was off in a booth somewhere going, all right, so this is Wanda... Smith, and she's from Duluth, Minnesota. She has a back injury, so yeah, just, uh, just push her on the back and you know, yell something big. This wasn't some kind of phony healing so that they could make a call for everybody to give a thousand shekels for a seed money so that they could have a blessing of health and wealth. Now, that's not what's happening here. Now, this was the Son of God who left the glories of heaven to be born of a virgin, to come to earth. This is the Son of God who, who lived a pretty much anonymous life for 30 years and then suddenly came blazing into the world with authority and power and mercy and grace. This is the Son of God through which everything has been made. Things in heaven, things on earth, the visible, the invisible, thrones, rulers, dominions, powers, all of those things made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Those hands from heaven were then on this woman. And what Jesus does is He gently raises her up from 18 years of pain and discouragement and darkness and depression from a body that she thought would kill her 
or at the very least that she would die still being hunched over. And all of a sudden, she is made erect again. Jesus stands her up. Suddenly, she would be able to look into the faces of those that she loved. She was going to see the sunset that night, and she was going to see the sunrise the next morning. Her life was changed forever. So the moral of this story is go to church and Jesus will heal your 18-year problem, right? Go to church and, and your spinal illness is going to disappear. Be faithful to go to church and your rebellious child will obey. Your irresponsible grandchild will, will get a steady job. Go to church and, and your spouse will begin to, to love and honor their vows. Go to church and your depressing job will become the best part of your day. Go to church and all of your plain old depression will completely be erased. Go to church and you'll get into that college you won't. Go to church and you'll get that job you won't. Go to church and you'll miraculously meet your spouse, your future spouse at Starbucks, you know, on a Friday at 4 o'clock. Go to church and your retirement account will triple in value. Go to church and your nephew will discover a fountain of youth in Madagascar and you'll never grow old again and never die. That's the moral of the story, right? No, it's not. It's not. And bless your nephew's heart, that Madagascar thing, that's not going to work out either. Now, could some of those things happen? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you might meet your spouse at Starbucks, I don't know. So yes, some of those things could happen, but that's not the picture of what we have. And so if it's not the picture of what we have, if, if the promise is not that we go to church or we're faithful to God and, and suddenly our miraculous happenings happen over our 18-year problem, if that doesn't happen, if that's not the promise, then, then where's the hope? What's the, what's the point of this story? for me and for you. Listen to what happened next. Verse 13, the last part. And immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. My friend Elva was one of our folks at our church at Abbotswood Assisting Living Center. Elva um, is with the Lord now. She probably was one of the most beautiful people inside and out that I've ever known and ever met. And she never missed church, but she had a terrible back, and her back got worse and worse the longer I knew her, and, and she hunched over a little more the longer I knew her. But along with all those other folks, she would do everything she could to get down the hall, to get on that elevator, to come upstairs and go to church. Some Sundays, though, she could make it. And she told me one time, she said, you know, when I can't make it, I still read my Bible, and I'll watch, you know, one of the preachers on TV. She goes, but I, I really just hate missing church. And she said, and the reason why is when, when I'm in that room with those people, it's this moment of my week where I'm reminded because we're together that we're doing what matters the most, worshiping the Lord, worshiping the Lord. I'm super glad you're here. And whether you are 18 or 80, whether this is your first time or you've been a member for a long time, I'm super glad that you're here. 
And I want you to know that, that what we do here does matter. We're, we're really not here to entertain you. This is really not a country club. We're, we're not here hoping that you will like everything that happens. We're here because the dynamic of gathering to enjoy the living God has living power for your life. We're here because the beauty of the gospel is this fantastic news. And it goes like this. Peter said this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that He might bring us to God. The greatest healing that you need in your life is not for your back. The greatest healing that you need in your life is not for your backward kids. The greatest healing that you need in your life is not for your bank account. The greatest healing that you need in your life is not for your backstabbing spouse. The greatest healing you need in your life is to be brought to God. That's the greatest healing, the the greatest treasure that you need in your life. So we're glad you're here now to hear that simple thought. That No matter what happens this week or next week or next year or 18 years from now, your greatest need is the beauty of the salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's your greatest need. Eighteen years ago yesterday, then-candidate George W. Bush was speaking at the Citadel in Charleston, and this is one of the things he said. For most of our history, America felt safe behind two great oceans, but with the spread of technology, distance no longer means security. And he said this, North Korea is proving that even a poor and backward country in the hands of a tyrant can reach across oceans to threaten us. That sound familiar? 18 years ago. Completely different circumstances, and yet still the same story. There really is nothing new under the sun. And then he went on to share this story. Three months ago in Providence, Rhode Island, a man rose to take the oath of American citizenship. So that would have been, you know, three months in 1999. This was September, I don't know, whatever three months is, June, July. He was one of many... But his case was different. And why was his different? He goes on. His name is Sergei Khrushchev, a former weapons scientist and son of the Soviet leader. And then he said this. Sometimes history's great epics are summed up in small events. The threat of the Cold War was captured in Nikita Khrushchev's vow to America, we will bury you. And then he says this. The story closes in this final footnote to that age with America saying to his own son, we welcome you. (laughs) If you are in Christ, you have been freed from sin. You're freed. You are loosed. Your chains are gone. And it may not be in 18 years And it may not be in 80 years that God removes that that one thing. But Jesus has, through taking the cup of wrath, Jesus has bought your freedom. And He has freed you from every disease and every depression and every discouragement. He has even freed you from eternal death. 
ultimately from all of those things. And so the glory of the cross and the beauty of the empty tomb means this, that even though today you may feel buried in your sin, you may feel, feel buried in your trial or your trouble or your tragedy, the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb, the beauty of the gospel is this, that if you are in Christ, there will be a day that Jesus says, welcome home. Welcome, welcome home.